0: A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word of the Lord.
1: know, some people would argue that uh, the central theme of scripture is all about uh, the kingdom of God. In fact, John Bright uh, wrote a book called The Kingdom of God, and he says this, had we to give that book, the Bible, a title, we might with justice call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. That is indeed its central theme everywhere. Old Testament and New Testament thus stand together as the two acts of a single drama. Now, there is absolutely no question that the kingdom of God is really the central theme of the teaching of Jesus. Um, Michael Grant, a historian, writes this. He says, every thought and saying of Jesus was directed and subordinated to one single thing, the, the kingdom of God. This one phrase sums up his whole ministry and his whole life. I mean, if we could travel in a time machine and we went back in time and we just happened to to stumble on to Jesus as he was teaching, uh, I guarantee you the thing he would be teaching about is the kingdom of God because it's what he always taught about. Uh, the kingdom of God is mentioned 120 times in the gospel. 90 times it comes and is mentioned on the lips of Jesus. I mean, it was his drumbeat. It was his framework. It was the thing which his ministry centered on. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, it says this. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also. And notice what he adds at the end there. Because this is why I was sent kingdom of God to Jesus wasn't a secondary issue, it was the primary issue. It was the focus of his mission. You know, when you build a house, you, you kind of build a framework, of two by fours, and that framework kind of determines the, the dimension of the house and the size of the house, and everything is hung on that framework. Well, Well, the framework for Jesus was this notion of the kingdom. Now, if all that is true, you would think then that uh, the framework for us would be the kingdom. That it would be the framework for our preaching, for our teaching, uh, for, for how we thought about our own Christian life. You would think that we actually would put on kingdom glasses and see all of life through this, this lens of the kingdom. I mean, if that's how Jesus viewed it, isn't that how we should view it? And, and if that's true, then it raises this This troubling question, why is the kingdom missing? I I mean, (laughs) I was thinking back this week about my own experience with this teaching of the kingdom of God. And I realized that I was a Christian for over 10 years before I ever heard a message about the kingdom. And then when I did hear a message, it wasn't in church, it was on the radio. David Maines was doing a series on the kingdom of God. Quite honestly, I I didn't run into the kingdom of God uh, in any form, let alone a message in church, until I was in seminary. And then when I took a a, a class on New Testament uh, survey, we spent two days talking about the kingdom. And then for the next four years, I didn't hear anything about the kingdom at all. And and, and I'm thinking, why? Why are we missing this notion of the kingdom? Well, this morning I want to talk about the kingdom of God. And uh, um, I want to to look at it and see if we can put the ministry uh, of Jesus into the context of this notion of kingdom. And then we'll talk about some of the implications of that. Uh, The kingdom of God... the notion kingdom really talks about the issue of authority, of God's rule and his reign. And when you begin to talk about the kingdom, then the the key question comes up is simply, who is in charge? Who's in charge? Because it's all about authority. And the scriptures answer that question. They give us a clear understanding of Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, He's the one in charge. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty, armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. You, your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. I mean, God is the one who's in charge. But if that's true. <laughs> Why is everything a mess? I I mean, why is it so messed up? I mean you go up to Rocky Mountain National Park and and you just are amazed by the beauty you look at the peaks and they're snow covered and you look at the streams and the animals and and it's just gorgeous and you think man this is a manifestation of God's glory he's the one who reigns and then you get home and you hear about the fires in California and the mudslides and the storms and you wait a second what's going on here or it's Christmas time, and you get to watch your, your grandchild, who's two and a half years old, open her presents, and she's just beaming and smiling, and, man, there is nothing better. And you think, this is, this is incredible. And then on the news, you hear about the genocide in Myanmar. And you realize that day, there were little kids around the world who died because they didn't have enough to eat or didn't have medical care or were caught up in violence. And you think, wait, wait a second. How can it be so beautiful and so broken? And we experience that in our own lives. The beauty and the brokenness. What is going on here? I think we find part of the answer to that in the the story of the kingdom, the story of the scriptures. So uh, I want to review that and then put Jesus in that context. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the story. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God is creating and the pinnacle of his creation is humankind. And he says two fascinating things about humanity. He says, one, that mankind is created in his image. Our image, the Trinity's image. That means we have certain characteristics that God has. We have the freedom to choose. We we can love. We can be in relationship. We, we think. We we have a will, a, a will. We have self-awareness. We have a moral consciousness. Uh, we we in a lot of ways are like Him. But that word implies more than that. Actually, that word is the Hebrew word for statue. Sometimes it's translated idol. We are God's idol. We are God's statues, and kings would put statues to represent their power and authority. And in a sense, what God is saying, I created you in my images, my statues, as my representatives in this world, and I have a task for you. And the task is to what? To rule now that's really interesting that's the first time this kingly language is used in the scriptures this notion of rule or reign and it's used here but it's not used in reverence to God it's used in reverence to us it's like God is setting us up as his representatives and we're to be co-regents ruling over his his world we're given this, this job and this responsibility but with that comes a danger right because we're created in his image, we have this, this freedom to choose, to obey or disobey, to, to fulfill our role or not fulfill our role. And what happens? When we mess it up, we get to Genesis chapter 3, and this strange character, the serpent appears, right? Don't know much about him, but, but he, he tells them, uh, you know, you guys, you, you should really be the ones who determine what's good and what's evil. You don't need to be a co-regent. You can reign on your own. And what do we decide to do? Oh, we disobey. We eat the fruit. We rebel. And at that moment, in the beauty of God's kingdom, there enters a brokenness there enters a rebellion, and suddenly there's two kingdoms, right? There's God's kingdom, and then there's the the kingdom of the rebellion that that we are part of, and now these two kingdoms are in conflict, and, and now you get all the beauty of God's kingdom, but you get all the brokenness that the fall brings with us. And the question becomes, what is God going to do? Who's going to win between the two kingdoms? Is God just going to to destroy this kingdom? Or is he going to do something else? And the rest of the Bible is the story of what God's going to do. And what God is going to do is bring about a restoration. He's going to win back the rebellion. He's going to reassert his, his kingdom. Now Now at first, it begins with a man named Abraham and his family, and eventually the nation that comes from his family. They're to be representatives of the king. They're to be the light in the darkness. They're, they're, they're the community that is supposed to model the values of the king. Only that doesn't go so well because they mess it up. They rebelled just as much as before. So God finally sends his prophets. And the prophets do two things. One, they announce a a message of judgment. Uh, You are now going to face the consequences of your rebellion. But at the same time, they give a message of hope, right? They begin to talk about this strange figure, this this king who is going to come, this anointed one. Uh, He's called the Messiah, who's going to come and and reestablish God's kingdom on earth someday he's going to come and he's going to make all things right and thus closes the Old Testament we get to the New Testament and and this morning as we get to the New Testament we're going to specifically look at the gospel of Mark I know as a church we've been going through the gospel of Mark Uh, we're going to begin that again in a couple weeks Um, But this morning, what I want to do is is look at the first chapter because what Mark does in that first chapter is he kind of gives us a summary uh, uh, of his gospel and talks about how Jesus becomes the central figure in this kingdom story. Um, Movie posters are kind of an art form of themselves. And movie posters have a a certain function there to kind of Entice you to go see the movie, and they do that by giving you glimpses of pieces of the story and presenting to you the characters and some of the events. One of the most famous movie posters in the history of film is this poster right here. Tom Cottrell put this together. It was done in 1976. It was for the first Star Wars movie, Uh, you know, episode number four, A New Hope. And it's this great poster, and if you look at it, it kind of represents the story. Who's the center of the poster? Uh, Luke Skywalker, right? And, and then you have all the characters, Han Solo and, and Leia and uh, uh, Governor Tarkin, who's the architect of the Death Star, Obi-Wan, and then even, even Chewbacca and the droid, CPO and R2-D2. Everybody's represented. And then in the background, what, what is there? There's the Death Star, you know, you know that's coming and it, behind all that is Darth Vader, the nemesis. And it's great. You look at that poster and, and you get the characters identified and you you want to go see the movie. Well, Mark chapter 1, he, he is kind of giving us this poster and he's trying to entice us to read the rest of the book, the rest of the gospel Of of Mark and I I want us to look at his poster the title on his poster is found in verse 1 it's this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God so the title on his poster is the good news about Jesus and this word good news is an interesting word it it often most often in the New Testament is translated as gospel This is the gospel. That's why we call it the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew. It's the good news. It's this word. This is the good news about Jesus. And what Mark is doing is he's tying him into this Old Testament story. He's going back and he's picking up an echo with this word about good news. Because good news... In the ancient times was always uh, news about a king. It was kingly news. When a a king came to power, they would send out heralds and saying, ah, a new king is inaugurated. That would be the proclamation. It would be the good news, kingly news. Or, Or if a king had a great victory, won a great battle, they would send out heralds to announce the good news of the victory. This is good news. And it goes back to Isaiah chapter 40. You who bring good news or gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lifted up. Do not be afraid. Say the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense comes. That was the hope in the Old Testament. now Mark's saying, guess what? This is Him. This is the, the gospel about Jesus. This is the one that the Old Testament was talking about. The Old Testament was always clear about him. Was he, he God? Was he a servant? Was he going to conquer? Was he going to suffer? What was he going to do? So, so Mark gives us a little more about this, the central figure on the poster, which is Jesus. He, he says, first of all, that he's the Messiah. Now that word actually is literally the Greek word Christos. And it's been translated as messiah christos means the anointed one and it's messiah is, is this anointed one from the old testament but the, the best way to translate that who was the anointed one the ones who were anointed were the king were, were the kings right kings were david was anointed as king this is the coming anointed what this is the coming king in fact i i told I told you a couple weeks ago that one of the one thing you can do is go through the scriptures and time you see the word Messiah or Christ, it would be very appropriate to cross that out and put their king, because it reminds us of who Jesus is. So when, when people in Jesus' day read this, they get a little nervous. <laughs> they thought, can, can we really say that? I, I mean, isn't that kind of a dangerous thing to say? Why? Because there was already a king, right, sitting on a throne. In Rome, his name was Augustus Caesar. And he's kind of on the poster in the background, right? Rome and Augustus Caesar. <laughs> and they said, yeah, this is this, treason. This is subversive. You, you can get killed for this. Christ the king? And then he says, yeah, and he's a special king. He, he is the, the, the son of God. Now, that made the religious leaders nervous, right? Because now Mark is claiming that this Jesus is actually deity. It's kind of this religious challenge. But it's also this political statement because Augustus Caesar uh, saw himself not simply as a king, but, but he saw himself first as Savior of the world and as God. Uh, there's a calendar that has an inscription on it that is talking about Augustus Caesar's birthday, and it says, Providence has given us Augustus Caesar because he is the Savior of the world. And, and he often referred to himself as the Son of God. And in fact, on his coinage, he would put an image of himself uh, on the front, and then on the back, it would be Divi Philia, which means deity son son of God Uh, um, and you know what Mark is saying look folks Caesar is an imposter (laughs) he's not the true king he's not the true savior of the world He's he's not God Jesus is Jesus is really the new hope he's the one that all history has been waiting for everyone has been looking to this is him He's here now. So we have Jesus, we have Caesar and Rome in the background. And then over in one corner of the poster, you kind of have a, a large jar, and it's filled with scrolls. And those scrolls are biblical scrolls. It's the scriptures. Mark turns to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, It's this prophecy. And again, Mark, in Mark 1, you see all these echoes going back to the Old Testament because Mark is tying Jesus into this larger story of the kingdom. So he goes back to Isaiah and he says, look, I will, Isaiah says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So if Jesus is the Lord, who is this, who is this voice crying in the wilderness? That's well, John the Baptist. So, so in another corner of the poster, you have John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness. He, he's bre- preaching uh, a baptism of repentance. And, and people are coming, and they're confessing their sins, and they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Why the Jordan River? Uh, what happened 1,200 years before this moment in time at the Jordan River? Do you remember? It goes back to the Old Testament story, right? An echo Uh, The people of Israel were coming out of the wilderness. They were lined up on the Jordan River. And Joshua was leading them across the Jordan River. And what were they doing? They were going into the promised land. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to set up this new kingdom that was to be a light in the darkness and reflect the values of uh, their God and their king. Only they messed it up. So, so John is trying to start this revival. He, he says, now the king is coming, the kingdom's uh, uh, arriving. Let's try this again. Let's repent. Let, let's change our ways and let's recommit ourselves. Let's have this revival. Let's start again to set up this kingdom and, and cross into the promised land. It's this echo. You see, it's part of the story that is being picked up from the Old Testament. And then as you look a little closer at John, what do you see? You see a guy who's really weird. I mean, he's just a strange character, right? Uh, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate, lo- I mean, he's out in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and wild honey. <laughs> isn't that Bible strange sometimes? I mean, it's just weird. But it's so great. I mean, it just makes you want to figure out what, what is going on here. It's awesome. But notice what he says. He says, after me comes the one more powerful than a, the straps of whose sandals are not worthy to stoop down and untie. He said, the guy who's coming, I'm not even worthy to tie this guy's shoe. Shoes, why? Because he, he's the one. He's, he's the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. Now, another place in the passage, uh, in this, the scene, you see Jesus coming down to the Georgian River to what? To be baptized. It's really interesting. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when Jesus gets baptized, what happens? All heaven breaks loose. I mean, God right up here is the skies part, he speaks, and he says, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit comes down in the form of a dove. First time in the New Testament, you have the construction of the Trinity. mean, it's not labeled that, but that's what you have there. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what is happening is God is putting his good housekeeping seal of approval on Jesus. And he's saying, hey, this is the one. This is the guy. This is the one... We've been waiting for... It's like like the poster, Luke Skywalker, everything points towards him. Uh, Mark's poster, everything points towards Jesus. He's the one who's come to reestablish the kingdom, to finish the story. And then what happens? The story begins, and Jesus goes out to do battle. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness... And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the Satan. Uh, this word Satan, when it appears in the New Testament, always, almost always appears with a definite article. So it's not just Satan. It's the Satan. And it's a title. And it means the adversary or the opposer. And he is an image, he is the evil that is behind Caesar and Rome, which is the Babylon. He is the one, the evil behind everything. He's the arch enemy. Now, when we think of the image of Satan, we we think of a little man with the, you know, he's red, he has horns, he has a pointy tail, and um, we have this caricature. But what Mark is presenting here is a far more sophisticated understanding of the satan the satan is personified personified evil he is the evil that is work at work behind the scenes he is the evil that is at work in the midst of the rebellion he is the evil that we know of in our own hearts uh, because we decide to rebel and never end up doing what's right we always end up blowing it again and again and again even though we try to do what's right. You you, you see the Satan at work in our community and in our world. It's personified evil. And Jesus goes out to do battle with him. And then Mark says something interesting. He says he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And, And out of all the gospels, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, this is the only gospel that talks about the wild animals. (laughs) why I mean what's wild animals what's going on Well, I think what Mark is doing is it's an echo right he's taking it back to the garden and Jesus is becoming the new Adam and Satan is the serpent and now they're recreating the original the original contest and the question is is Jesus going to give in? And what's fascinating is Mark doesn't tell us. I mean we we know from Matthew and the other gospels what happens in, in the temptation, but Mark doesn't tell us why. Because the whole point of chapter 1 as this poster of Jesus and all the things going on, the whole point of the the poster is what? To get you to see the movie. It's to get you to read the book of Mark. He's saying, come on, now now read the rest of the story. Read the gospel because it'll fill out what's going to happen. All right? And in a sense, the movie begins, right? Verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what does he say? He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The the story has been reignited. The king is here. The kingdom's arrived. And the question is, what are you going to do? And now you think, okay, Nick, you know, you guys beat this thing to death. I mean, this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, this story that you're telling from the Old Testament that Jesus. We we get it! We get it, okay? We understand it's this big picture. But how does that connect to me? What difference does that make? Why is that so important? I mean, it's interesting biblical stuff, but honestly, who cares? I think it's incredibly important because it's the framework of our faith. And quite honestly, I think it changes everything. This morning, I want to give you you two implications. Next week, we'll talk about other ones. But uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and use my notes so I don't mess this up because I'm going to go after a few sacred cows this morning, okay? But I think there's two... Answers or implications to the so what question we'll talk about this morning. The first is this. This understanding of the story of the kingdom and how Jesus fits into it as king fundamentally changes our understanding of the gospel. I think that we have shrunken the gospel, that it's become simply a sliver of what it was intended to be. It it has been tainted by our individualism and it has been compromised by our selfishness. I think the American culture has gotten the best of the gospel and, and, and twisted it and shrunken it. So in many ways, it's off track. Now, now, let me share the gospel with you this is the gospel that we present this is the gospel I heard when I became a believer a follower of Jesus and there's some truth in this gospel but, but it's not the whole truth and at points it's I would argue unbiblical this is it I'm a sinner right I've sinned and I've broken my relationship with God and the fundamental issue in life is how do I get back into a relationship with God that's what life is all about to figure that out And the answer is, well, Jesus, Jesus died for my sin. And in fact, when I heard that, people would tell me, you know, if I was the only sinner in the world, Jesus would have gone to the cross for me. Because really, it's it's all about him dying for me so that I can have this relationship with God. And how do we respond? Well, we're to accept Jesus as what? As our personal Lord and Savior. And really the crux of the issue is that we're to have a personal relationship with with Jesus. And and that notion of personal Lord and Savior and personal relationship, that's really the framework on which we have built the foundation of our faith. That's that's what our our teaching and our preaching and and the framework in which we operate uh, uh, in the church in America today, that's what it's all about. Right? And then what happens if you, you accept Jesus is, you know, either you raise your hand or you pray this prayer, and as a result, you get a ticket that gets you to heaven, right? You get to get out of here, and heaven is what? Out there. It's this ethereal place, and we'll spend eternity in this ethereal place as disembodied souls, you know, sitting on clouds, strumming harps, praising God. That was the gospel that I was taught. And that's the gospel that often... We, as a, as a church in our culture, teaches. Some truth there, but very shrunken. L- let me share with you some of the concerns I have about that gospel, all right? The first is that gospel detaches Jesus from the larger story of the Bible. You know, there's nothing in that gospel about Jesus coming, becoming king. There's nothing in that gospel about him setting up his kingdom and reestablishing his rule reign. There's nothing about the rest of the story of the Bible. That's why in most of our churches we talk about uh, the epistles and, you know, that's all we need. We don't talk about the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with the Old Testament. So we just ignore that for the most part. We just use it as a moral examples. But, but we never catch the bigger story of what's going on and how Jesus fits into that story. We make a very small story that life is all about sharing the fact that people need to accept Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior and get a ticket to heaven. And, and that becomes the focus of life. And the problem is it makes for a very, very small story. Because in that story, nothing else has much meaning. And it gets to be pretty thin. It shrinks the gospel. Second. It puts us at the center of things rather than Jesus the King. Right, that that, that gospel is all about me. It's all about the fact that I'm a sinner. And that Jesus might, I mean, Jesus is part of the story, but I'm at, I'm at the center of the poster, right? He's just there to be my Savior, to be, to be the one who rescues me. It's all about me. And in fact, that's how we sell this gospel, isn't it? Just how we present it. We, we tell people you have a need and Jesus can meet that need. You're lonely, except Jesus. He, he can take care of your lonely. You're addicted, uh, meet Jesus. He can take care of the addiction. Uh, you're struggling financially, meet Jesus. He can take care of the, the finances. You know, Jesus can solve whatever problem it is because after all, it's all about you. It's all about me. And in that gospel, when it's all about me and we're at the center Jesus becomes a nice add-on to our lives. But folks, the gospel is not the good news about me or you. The gospel is the good news about King Jesus. Re-establishing his kingdom. And when he died, he didn't come simply to die for me or simply to die for you. He came to die for the world. He came to defeat Satan. He came to to destroy all evil, sin, and death. I mean, there's something cosmic going on. Quite honestly, our salvation is secondary. It's derivative of the larger picture. I mean, Jesus does tremendous things in our lives. He can meet all kinds of our needs. But, but in the New Testament, they never based the gospel or the presentation of Jesus on someone's need. It was always based in truth, right? It wasn't Jesus can meet your need. It was Jesus is king. Fall down before him. Third concern, not only does it detach Jesus from the big picture, Not only does it make it about us rather than about him, but third, I think some of it's just unbiblical. Um, This notion that we're to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior and that we're to have a personal relationship with God is really the heart of the framework in which we structure our faith about. But I want you to understand that neither of those phrases are biblical terms. You can find no place in the scriptures where we're told to accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. You, you can find no place in scripture where it talks about a personal relationship with God. I mean, those phrases didn't even come about until the 1800s with Moody and the revivalist movement. The early church didn't say, you know, you got to accept Jesus. It's like Jesus is coming hat in hand. Will you, will you take me in? Will you take me in? No, no, no. They presented Jesus as the coming king who is going to rule the universe. And the question is, not will you let him in. The question is, will you bow your knee and give him your allegiance? I mean, we're never told to pray to accept Jesus. We're never told to walk an aisle to accept Jesus. We're never told to raise a hand to accept Jesus. What are we told? We're told to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. (laughs) that he is the triumphant, risen Christ, king of the universe. You're saying, wait a second, are you saying that it's wrong, that it's unbiblical to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, I would say yes and no, it all depends what you mean by personal. If you mean we're supposed to have a private individualistic relationship with Jesus, then I would say, yeah, that is not biblical. Your faith is never private, it's never just you and God or you and Jesus. It's never individualistic. I mean, you have to make an individual decision of allegiance, but it's never... You don't live out your Christian faith alone. We're called to live out our Christian faith in community with other people who follow the king. It's never just Jesus and me. Now, if by personal we mean that you can have an intimate communion with God... And yes, that, that is biblical. But, but it's not this intimate relationship with Jesus, my little buddy. It's this relationship with Jesus who, <laughs> he's the king of the freaking universe. And that's fundamentally different than how we treat him. forth removes Jesus from the big picture and puts us at the center of things some of it's unbiblical and forth it sells Jesus as an escape plan to get to heaven right that's what it's all about you know you get your ticket you pray your prayer you, you, you get out of here why because the The earth is going to be destroyed. It's all going to burn. That's not true. There's a judgment that comes on the earth, but the the earth is not destroyed. The king, we don't, and you know what, folks? We don't go away to heaven. Our eternal existence is not as ethereal spirits out there sitting on clouds, strumming on harps. Now, what happens to us? We are resurrected. We have physical bodies. We exist on what? On a restored earth. Yes, there's a judgment, but the restoration comes. And heaven, into revelation, heaven comes to earth. And we live as resurrected people. And, and folks, that, that's more profound than you can imagine. Because if this world is totally destroyed... If it's all burned up in the end, then basically our lives have no meaning. No matter what you do, how you work, how you relate, what your marriage is like, how you treat your, it all in the end burns burns up. The only thing that matters is share share the ticket, get other people to go, right? Because your job doesn't have any meaning, this place is burned up. Accomplishments don't have any meaning, this place is burned up good works you don't do have any meaning in the end it's all gone the new testament says no there's a continuity between this world and the world to come and what does that mean that means everything we do in this world in this life can have eternal significance and meaning when I live out the kingdom as a citizen of the kingdom and I work to bring the kingdom here and pray for the kingdom to come and orient my life around that, it takes on eternal purpose. If you're a teacher and you teach and your kingdom values infuse your teaching, that has significance. If you're a businessman and you, you run your business according to kingdom principles. It's not just going to burn up. That's part of the fabric that God is building. That's going to be part of the new age. It's part of the kingdom coming. It's arrived now. My gosh, if you're a plumber and you plumb to the glory of God, your plumbing is going to make a difference in the coming kingdom. There's this continuity between this world and the world to come. And all of life has meaning. You see, it's a a fundamental fundamentally different understanding of the gospel now does that mean that that gospel is worthless no it's a sliver but the essence of the gospel is there I mean think about it It, it, that's the gospel I believe that's the gospel that got me here it's probably the gospel that got you here Even though it's twisted and in some places wrong, it still has an essence of Jesus dying, and I can take take benefit in that and give him my allegiance. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. What's he saying? gospel changes your life it has this it's more powerful than our presentation it's more powerful than our mixed up doctrine it can change us but don't miss this where we're wrong at the center we'll be way off on the edges so yes it's transformative but if we don't get it right it will mess us up in other places and quite honestly folks none of us have it all right We got to get it more right than that. Well, so you say saying, well, then how do I, I explain the gospel? Here's one way. God created us to co-rule a good creation, but humanity rebelled. Jesus died to redeem the world, defeating sin, death, evil, and Satan. And we must choose our allegiance. Which kingdom are we going to be a part of? That's the decision. And then the hope is the restoration will bring heaven to earth. You can put it in one sentence like this. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus has been made king by his atoning death and triumphant resurrection, which defeats Satan's sin, evil, and death itself. And thus he will one day reclaim his kingdom completely. That's the gospel. So if one implication of the kingdom is that it fundamentally changes our understanding of the gospel, the second implication is that it absolutely demands for us to choose our allegiance. When Jesus comes on the scene, what is he saying? He said, hey, the kingdom's here. It's in me. It's starting now. And the question is, what are you going to do? Which kingdom are you going to be part of? That's why he says repent and believe. Repent and trust me. Uh, uh, repent and, and give me your allegiance. So, what really believe means. Give me your allegiance. Yeah, Look, folks, Jesus is king. He doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. He doesn't want a partial commitment. He doesn't want a temporary commitment. He... he, he He doesn't want a half hearted commitment. He wants all of you. Why? Because he's the reigning king. Right? And, And what happens is we're on now this journey to turn, you know, all of us have walled off areas of our life that we don't let him rule in. And we're on this journey to tear down those walls and let him in and let him rule. That's the progression of the kingdom in our own lives. You see, and what that means is it changes everything because God wants us to put on kingdom glasses. He wants us to have kingdom values. He he wants the kingdom reflected in our marriages. He wants it reflected on our our relationships. He wants the kingdom reflected in our politics and how we vote and how we think and how we act as a society. He wants the, the kingdom reflected in our passion for justice. He wants the kingdom reflected in how we do work. He wants the kingdom reflected in how we raise our kids. He he wants the kingdom reflected in our own personal morality and our sexuality. He wants the kingdom reflected in what we do with our money. He wants the kingdom to come into every part of our lives. It's not an add on. He's not a ticket to heaven. Being a Christian is not just praying a prayer and walking in an aisle. Being a follower of Jesus is saying, I give you my allegiance. You are my Lord. You are my king. That's the kingdom. And next week we'll talk about more implications, um, but I, I want you to get it that for Jesus the kingdom was everything, and for us the kingdom needs to be everything. Amen.